Let us pray one more time. Loving God, we know that you are God. Be with us today as we look into your word. And may we have the peace of heaven. We thank thee, God, for all that you've given to us. Give us a clear mind as we study your word. And speak through me, Lord. And uh, may you shine through this message this morning, we pray in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. The death that gives life. Those of us who grew in a loving Christian home, we were taught that God is love. That God is the very embodiment of love. And if God is love, then love is all of God. Love is a principle that drives loving actions. In a godless universe, love makes no sense at all. If the sole law of existence is the survival of species, then love is just a mere facade, a tool for survival and ultimately driven by selfishness. The false love that the world promotes is really what the Bible calls as lust. If you open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, the book of 1 John chapter 2, the Bible tells us in verse 15 to 17, love not the world neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that what? Doeth the will of God abideth forever. That's what love is. The world's version of love is one that is without sacrifice. A sultry mix of emotions without practical principle. The world seeks the convenience of taking without giving back. A mess of pleasurable feelings, but no sense of good and godly actions. That is also what is known as sin. God's love is about mutual service one to another. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, the book of Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 tells us, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is also known as the what? Golden rule, right? 
Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Very familiar. And you know what? This is a principle that is found in many other religious beliefs as well. But here, God is putting it into a form that those who believe in the true God really understand it. This is all the law and the prophets. If what you want men to do to you, do unto them. This is because God's law is a law of love. And true love does not merely take. It gives back even the more. When we seek to fulfill our desires without giving, we are in violation of the golden rule. You see, selfishness is the epitome of rebellion against God. For God is the one who defined love as a principle of selfless action. And not just a motley array of feel-good emotions and feelings, right? That's not what love is. On the other hand, sacrifice is the essence of love. In fact, it is the very substance of love. A principle that involves tangible actions that hold practical value of love as a reality and not just a fairy tale of notions. Now, you've probably listened to the world's version of love. And there's a lot of fairy taleish uh, sentiment to it, right? But the biblical version of love is one of sacrifice. Ellen White writes in the book, A Call to Stand Apart, page 21. She writes, Love must be the principle of action. Love is the underlying principle of God's government in heaven and earth. And it must be the foundation of the Christian's character. This alone can make and keep him steadfast. This alone can enable him to withstand trial and temptation. End quote. So what we learn here is that the principle that underlies all actions of love is unselfishness. God is the ultimate embodiment of this. On a Passover festival nearly 2,000 years ago, a man who we call the Son of God prepared himself during the Last Supper with his disciples before what would be his ignoble execution. The Son of God, God who has been God throughout all eternity, did not consider the riches of the glory of heaven to be worth more than his love for us. In the most literal meaning of the world, word, Christ had everything. The glory, the might, and love most perfect. He had the ability to destroy the world and recreate it at whim, if that is what he desired. But all the treasures of heaven could not keep God from loving you and I. The unlimited wealth of glory could not stop him from sacrificing his all for his love for us. 
Because true love gives and goes through sacrifices. Alfred Vanderbilt was a great-grandson and heir of the extremely wealthy railroad magnate Cornelius Vanderbilt. Now, the Vanderbilts were descendants of a Dutch immigrant family, and Cornelius built his fortune from the ground up. Now, they're the ones who built the New York Grand Central Station, and by the end of the 1800s, their wealth was immense. And they were third in line of the most richest in American history, just behind the Carnegies and the Rockefellers. Now, Alfred himself, being an heir, was slated to receive a large inheritance. His opulent lifestyle was known to a lot. They were the celebrities of the day. He had celebrity status and much wealth. And he was also attractive and young. Now, on May 1st of 1915, Alfred, with over 2,000 other passengers and the crew of the RMS Lusitania, embarked on a voyage from New York to Liverpool, England. And on her seventh day of voyage, the Lusitania was torpedoed by a German submarine in an incident that would bring the United States into World War I, just as Pearl Harbor did many years later in World War II. What survivor witnesses describe Alfred Vanderbilt doing was nothing short of heroic. Instead of insisting that he, as a wealthy heir, should be one of the first on the lifeboats, he sprang into action, gathering all the women and children that he could find and help them onto lifeboats. Now, get this. While the RMS Titanic took almost three hours to sink beneath the waves three years earlier, the RMS Lusitania took only 18 minutes to sink beneath the waves. But in that short period, Alfred Vanderbilt was observed loading the elderly, the women and the children onto lifeboats with no observable hesitancy. In the final moments as the ship was about to slip under the surface of the water, he heard the cries and sobs of a woman holding her child as they slumped against the wall. They were waiting for the inevitable. They had no access to a lifeboat and no life vest. Without a second to lose, Alfred took off his own life vest and secured it to the young mother and was seen to assure her and tell her to save herself and her child. Alfred Vanderbilt drowned in the Atlantic as the Lusitania sank to the bottom. He was 37 years old. Without regard for his young life and the immense wealth he was leaving, he chose to perish than to see other souls die. His uncle, interestingly enough, George Washington Vanderbilt, was said to have been slated to board the Titanic on her maiden and ill-fated voyage, but he canceled his journey at the last moment. But his nephew, Alfred, saved many, but sacrificed himself. This is love. To disregard one's own personal person, to save others. This is what Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, has done for you and I. 
How many ask, why? Why was the sacrifice necessary? The answer lies thousands of years ago, even further back, close to the creation of the world. A wily serpent that yielded itself to the control of the arch deceiver, Satan, and tempted Eve, the woman, to consume what many would think is just a measly fruit. It seemed like a simple, insignificant act. But it wasn't. It was the height of rebellion, a complete lack of faith in the one who created them. And at bottom, a very selfish act. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 tells us, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it, it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband, which was with her, and he did eat. Eve was joined by her husband Adam, and since then the whole of creation suffered the effects of imperfection and sin. Every animal, every blade of grass, every speck of dust now bore the imprint of physical defilement. Animals began to behave selfishly in the name of survival. We have two dogs, and... Uh, when they get to food, they growl and snarl at each other to defend their pile of meaty, succulent goodness. You see, sin has, has had its deadly effect. Not just on humanity, but over the whole earth. And creation groans. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 10. Sorry, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. This planet was kicked into a seemingly never-ending spiral, into a fiery pit, and its fate seemingly sealed by the demands of the law of God. For the rages of sin is what? Death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Death, the just requirements of the law, requires our lives, for we are sold under sin. But you know what? God, 2,000 years ago, gave love to this world. A world that spat on His law, a world that rejected Him and mocked and killed His prophets and messengers. And to this day, we crucify the Son of God anew by our transgressions. There are certain Christians today that believe that our condition is because of Adam's sin. They think that all the fault lies with him. They also think that we inherit the guilt of Adam. And therefore, we are being punished for Adam's sin, that original sin that became the fall. And they believe that ultimately Christ died for Adam's sin. But this is not the biblical account. This is not biblically accurate. Christ didn't die just for Adam's sin. Yes, Adam's sin did result in a broken world and in death. And birds die. Do they inherit the guilt of Adam? 
Dogs whelp when subject to pain. Do they do so because they share in Adam's guilt? No, the physical consequences of sin affect all those, even those that don't share in Adam's original guilt. Because sin broke the world and is no longer good and perfect. The spiritual consequences of sin and its wages are a result of our own decisions. Yes, sin is a choice. We do not inherit the guilt of Adam. The Bible tells us clearly in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall what? Die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus died for my sins. He died for your sins. Our wrong choices, not the wrong choices of my father or his father or anyone all the way down to Adam. It was my sin that put him on that cross. Mine, each lousy sin, each thought and act of rebellion that I've thought of and made. He suffered and died for. Each sin is an act of murder, of theocide. The lies, the covetousness, the taking of his name in vain, the disregard for his holy sanctified day. Each one places him back on that cross. And he gladly takes the agony. And the weight of the sins of the world, so the world through him might be saved. Now think of the worst sin that you have ever thought that you have ever committed. Think hard and try to remember. And think of the sin that you thought so insignificant that you just brushed away as nothing. Jesus bore the crown of thorns for those sins. The crown that was intended for us. Instead, he bore it so we could have a crown of glory. Jesus took the nails in his hands and feet for those sins. Those nails were intended for us. Instead, he took them so that we could use a set of golden nails to build our dream home in the heavenly countryside. Aside from the mansions in the New Jerusalem, which he has already prepared for us. John 15 verse 13 tells us, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It was September 26, 2009. Heavy torrential rains worried the citizens of Quezon City in the Philippines. That's where my uh, ancestry is from. Tropical storms have hit the islands before, but this sequence of rain seemed almost nonstop. 18-year-old Muelmar Magallanes and his parents were deeply concerned. Their little home was starting to fill with water. 
They were poor with very little belongings to worry about. But Muelmar would comfort his mother saying that he would work hard so that one day they could all be financially stable. But this day the rain did not stop. And the flooding got worse and worse with the waters rising all the way to waste level. Muelmar helped his loved ones to safety. And once they were safe on high ground, his parents implored him, come with us, follow us. But Muelmar would couldn't get himself to do it. There were people in the surrounding homes, his neighbors that needed help evacuating. It was a perilous task as the water level rose quickly. Within a few minutes, the water level reached even past the rooftops. Wilmar was a strong swimmer, so he used his skill to go to the rescue. He pulled children to safety. He swam an elderly couple floating on some debris to safety, and a woman and child that was trapped on a rooftop, he was able to pull to safe ground. But he didn't stop. He couldn't stop. Too many people needed his help. He was noticeably becoming more and more exhausted. Yet he pushed himself to the limit because someone out there still needed his help. He kept going back and forth until he had saved more than 30 people. A survivor said in an interview, a hand just came out of nowhere and pulled us to safety. It was like an angel had rescued us. But by this time, Welmar's strength had waned. The current was becoming too strong. Yet the threat of mortal danger did not faze him. And he went out to try and save some more. There were others that still needed his help. So as he entered an alleyway, he became stuck. The raging waters had loosened the concrete wall adjacent to him, and the structure gave way. The walls fell on Welmar, crushing and pinning him under the deluge. He was found the next morning, bruised and lifeless. His grieving mother, weeping, in front of reporters said, he could have saved himself, but he didn't. He wanted others to live, even if it was to cost his own life. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3 to verse 7. Isaiah 53 Three to seven. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid as if it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. For all we are like sheep that 
gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. You see, it is said that Christ could have summoned 10,000 angels to rescue him from that cross. And in a, within a blink of an eye, they could have destroyed the world. Alike, our scripture, Mark fifteen thirty one tells us, Likewise, also the chief priests mocking said amongst themselves with the scribes, He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. In a way, the chief priests and scribes weren't entirely wrong. For Christ did not save himself because he was constrained by love. His death is what gives us life. But he didn't stay dead, did he? He arose and is alive forevermore, and is interceding for you and I, the most holy place of that heavenly sanctuary. For he is the resurrection and the life. To close, I hope that you will come to realize God's immense and intense love for you. And that our transgressions, ours, not just our father Adam's, but our transgressions are what put him on that cross. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for you are a God of love. That you gave your all in your son Jesus Christ so that we may have eternal life. And Lord, we are sorry and we repent of the wrong things that we do. For we know that each sin, each act, and even each thought of rebellion is what put your son on that cross, is what made your son suffer. And though he did not deserve it, he died so that we could have eternal life. And God, we are eternally thankful. There are no words that can express how thankful we are for this love that you have for us. Neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything can separate us from your love. And we are eternally grateful. And may we share this love with others as well, Lord, as a witness to all nations so that your kingdom can come soon and that we may all go home and experience this love for you, for each other, forever. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name.
Amen.